Good morning, Willow Park Church. We're so happy that you've joined us and that we're able to gather in this way, although you know we'd love to be in person and love to be able to um, worship together, see each other's faces. It is very challenging. But this morning, we have the opportunity to really press into the Word of God, to continue our journey through the book of Daniel, and ask the Lord what He's saying to us in this time. And as we seek His face and say, Lord, what do you want to say to us? How do you want to speak to us? What difference do you want to make in my life? I think it's a real challenge at this time that we, we focus our minds on choosing to serve Christ. And that takes determination. That takes real commitment to say yes. Yes, you know, it's so easy to check out. It's so easy not to get involved. It's so easy not to keep your faith alive and active when we're not gathering as a community. But I know that those of you who are joining this morning, that you, uh, you really have a deep desire to hear from God. You have a deep desire to know uh, God's presence and God's power working in your life, working in your family. Uh, the place of your, where you work, as your employment, that in every area, we don't kind of live this dualistic approach. We know that God's presence is with us in every sphere of our life. And what we want to do is bring that mission, that energy, that good news. In fact, the Bible says in the New Testament that we are living epistles. People look at us and they read. They read and see by the way that we respond. And I guess the writing that's on this living epistle of our lives is written in love. And when we respond to people in love, when we respond to people with kindness and with grace, when we pray for others, we're seeing the kingdom of God being, um, being spread abroad into people's lives. And that God's presence is there. I walk the same route um, every uh, day, mainly, up in um, Rutland through the orchards and, and go for a four or five mile walk and pray and think. And over the years, I've kind of developed connections and friendships with different people who do the same thing. There's one old man that I always know and I always see him and he has faith. Uh, a strong faith I've discovered over the years. He loves to listen to the owls and uh, watch the hawks and uh, walk those, um, those roads. And often I'll find him just staring out at the sunset. These days, what, around 5.20. And I, I say good evening and we talk for a few minutes. And this week he was just sharing how through a traumatic life, through a feeling of inadequacy and through the pain of his journey. He came from Manitoba. He remembers feeling so lost and alone in life, facing some challenges that he's learned to connect with the Lord. And he said, I often stand here and look at this sunset day after day, in fact, year after year, and my heart is filled with such love and joy because of the Creator. And sometimes he says, I'm overwhelmed because of the joy of the Creator in my life. And we stood there and we chatted for a while and then I walked on. Well, 
I got to a spot where I could see the clouds changing and the light shifting. And I stood there for 10, 15 minutes and I stared into that light as it changed. And you know, it reminded me the need for us to just pause and to become overwhelmed by the love of God in our lives, to have that connection. And maybe like my friend who I've Get, have got to know, you ha too have a story. You've got brokenness. You've got loneliness. You've got an inner emptiness. But when we take time to seek God and understand the power of Jesus Christ, it makes such a profound difference in our lives. And maybe in this Lent period, it's time that you walk the path and you pause and you say, Lord, overwhelm my heart with your love. Show me a fresh revelation of your love and your grace in my life. And that's what I want for all of us. So as we begin worship, we know we need discipline and we need to focus when we put on the worship online. But we can create a little holy space as Curtis leads us. And as you hear the songs, allow the Lord to just, yeah, overwhelm you with his love this morning. Father, thank you that we can begin this service. And thank you that we can see your creation all around us. And I pray, Lord, that as we begin this morning, that we may feel that love and that sense of being just simply overwhelmed by the sense of God is love, that you love us and care for us and you have drawn us to yourself through the work of the cross. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, over to Curtis. He's going to lead us now in a time of worship and thank you again for joining us. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Willow Park Church Online. So good to be here with you and with my friends here, Luke and Rachel and Jordan, and I'm Curtis, and we're here to worship. We're here to express our love for Jesus. And so join us as we do that in community, wherever you are, we are together right now. We love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice. To worship you, oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. theme of our worship this morning is going to be about Jesus coming to us and us coming to him. There's so many beautiful scriptures that, that just reflect that. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. 
Jesus said, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and hinder them not, for to such as these is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. So we come to you, Jesus, now this morning with our worship. you 
because Jesus came to us and he comes to us we open our hearts to him Jesus said I have come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me 
And Jesus said, I will come back and take you to be with me so you can be with me forever. And Jesus said, yes, I am coming soon. I'm so glad we don't have to wait for you, Jesus, because you're here with us all the time. Your blessings, your mercies are new every morning. And we have such wonderful lives because you are in them. So come, come Lord Jesus.
I lift my voice to worship you, oh my soul, rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you Sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Thank you, Jesus. We love worshiping you. We love this family. We love this church. Bless it. Bless us all. As you speak to us, as you have spoken to us through the songs we have sung, and you'll speak to us through the words that will be spoken, Lord, let us feel your closest. Come to us as we come to you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Well, as we hold the emblems, the bread and the wine, it reminds us again of all that Christ has done for us and the way that he has come to, to heal us, our brokenness, to restore that lost relationship that we can know that, that sunlight of God's love. Let me remind you that Christ came and lived amongst men, but he was sent from the Father to bring us home. We're all spiritual renegades. We're all fallen. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as Romans states. I love Romans. It has such energy and life. And we understand our brokenness, but we understand, as the book of Romans points out, that we, he will save us from this corrupt world, from our own sinfulness. It's Christ Jesus that saves us from that. And when he hung upon the cross, nails through his hands and his feet, the blood there from the crown of thorns, he was dying in my place. He was dying for me. He was that substitute. He paid the price so that I may live. He paid the debt so that I may no longer be bankrupt, but I can be credited righteous. I can be made clean. I remember that moment. That moment I gave my life to Jesus as clearly as if it was yesterday when I prayed a prayer of repentance I didn't fully understand. And yet when I called on the name of Jesus, I felt and experienced the renewing and the strengthening and the, and, and the newness of God like rushing through me. I guess like my friend who stood there and spoke about as he stared at the sunlight and thought of the creator, he became overwhelmed by love. I guess for me, it's that I walked out of that little gospel hall on a, I think it was a February evening, but I felt clean, clean for the first time. Guilt, shame had gone because of what Christ has done. 
And maybe this is the moment when you pause and you give your life to Christ and you invite him to become Lord and so that you too can feel that sense of being clean. This is the prayer I prayed when I became a Christian. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for the way that I've lived. But as you gave yourself for me upon the cross, I give myself to you. I choose to make you Lord of my life. I choose to become your disciple. Amen. That little prayer was the beginning that changed my life. And on the night in which the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And so we should eat it and examine ourselves, our motives, our heart, and hand over our weaknesses to Christ. Confess our sin and take the bread and remember, Christ died for you. The body of Christ, broken for you. Eat it. He poured out wine and simply stated, this is the blood of the new covenant. Whereas the blood of sheep and goats and sacrifices never were enough to atone, to pay the price, to sanctify humanity. It took an eternal sacrifice to deal with the universal problem of sin. And Christ's blood takes away the sins of the world. Drink it and remember. Amen. Well, there is so much going on at Willow Park Church as we move our, our journey towards Easter. Uh, we're coming to the end of Marriage Alpha or the marriage course, as it's called. It's been glorious. It's been awesome. I've led a group with Michelle, and we've had such a fantastic time. And I know the other uh, marriage facilitators have had a great time. We're now looking towards a promotion of Alpha, and you'll be hearing a lot more about that. But right now, we're going to hand over to Courtney, and she's going to share the Willow news. Thank you. Hello, Willow Park Church. My name is Courtney. Thank you for joining us at Church Online. Here is your family news. If you're looking for a great opportunity for prayer, consider joining our noon prayer gathering. It happens every weekday, Monday to Friday at 12 o'clock noon. 
Join our pastors and other leaders online for a half hour of meeting with God and praying for one another. To find out how to connect, visit our website at willowparkchurch.com prayer. Our midweek youth programs have started up again. Grades 9 to 12, join us on Wednesday nights. And grades 6 to 8, join us on Thursdays. Learn more and sign up at willowparkchurch.com cahoots lounge. Do you love to sing? Join us tonight for a brand new hymn sing with Pastor Curtis. This happens every Sunday at 6 p.m. on Church Online, Facebook, and YouTube. Learn more at willowparkchurch.com hymn. That's all for your family news. Thanks and enjoy your service. Well, here we are at the beginning of our journey into the glorious Daniel at Daniel 8 verses 1 to 27. There are a lot of verses here and a lot to understand, but let me explain to you as we begin this process. Of course, much debate has been happening about uh, Daniel 7, Daniel 8 through to Daniel 12. Apocalyptic literature is what it's called. The end of the time, times of changing. Now, let me ask you the question, Why does apocalyptic literature exist? Why is it there? Well, the reason it exists is very simple. It exists, it's a unique form of biblical literature. It is in Daniel's uh, account and it is also in the book of Revelation. And within the canon of scripture, it is, has its unique position. I mean, you have history like kings, chronicles, you have um, the Torah and the first five books of uh, the books of Moses. You have the poetry and the literature. You have the prophets, whereby they speak a particular message into a particular uh, event. And then you have this amazing, dramatic, visual powerful form of literature that explodes from the page. And as it explodes from the page, it tells a story. And you look at it, you go, what is it talking about? Really? I have no idea. What does this, this indicate? This kind of literature. Now, the reason this literature exists is that often what is happening around the literature and what it's describing is something that is quite horrific. In other words, there is a major problem taking place. Often it is a major persecution. It is a major darkness. It is foretelling a time when evil descends and you wonder as a sheep, as a follower of Christ, as one who is a believer in God, you're wondering what is happening. Now, If you understand Daniel chapter 7 as kind of massive global themes, it has that sense of now and later. It has that sense of near and far. It has that imagery of beasts who are hybrid rising out of the ground. And Pastor Jordan spoke clearly about the themes. And many people have different opinions about how uh, these beasts and the little horn and the uh, 
the Antichrist plays out. And of course, um, you yourselves will do your own uh, investigation, I'm sure. But if you think of chapter 7 as more global and think of chapter 8 as more uh, local, most In fact, all theologians are pretty dialed in that we understand the heart of chapter 8 and we understand what is going on and the context of what is taking place and what is happening. So the 27 verses which we will fly through, and let me explain, go through a certain process. Now with all chapters, chapter 7, chapter 8, through to 12, there is a basic formula to understand what is taking place. Let me explain this formula to you. First of all, there are a number of themes, six themes that come out in the chapters that we can apply theologically to each part of the chapter. This is very exciting stuff here. Very good. Number one is that it deals with the theme of man's relentless ability to do evil in the world. So remember that or write it down or think about it as you consider. It's about man's evil in the world. Each of the chapters reflect man's evil. Secondly, we understand that in each of the chapters, there's the theme of time and deliverance. That at the right time, in the right way, whether immediate history, as in Daniel's era, or future history, as in the second coming, God will work at his time, in his way, at that moment. That's really important to understand. There's timing involved. Number three is that there is a cosmic battle taking place. The forces are at work. Often, as we see in this chapter 7, Gabriel appears. The hosts of heaven are present. There is a sense of of, of a real sense of of God's presence and, and God's battle at place. And you can pick this in all of the chapters, that there is definitely a heavenly battle taking place and happening. So that's important to, to realise. Fourthly, that, that repentance deals with the power of rebellion. In other words, there's always a response looking for repentance to deal with the power of rebellion. And rebellion is a theme. The rebellion of the nations, the rebellion of the little horn, the rebellion of the kind of antichrist figure or the evil figure, the rebellion of darkness and the rebellion of believers who are not living the way that they should. So we have four themes going on there that are important. Let me remind you, evil of humanity and their ability to do such horrific acts. God's timing of deliverance, repentance and rebellion, which is cosmic battle. The fifth one is God's judgment. In other words, God will always judge. At the end of time, within the circumstances, God speaks, the pain comes to an end, God judges. So you'll see this in chapter 8 as well, God judging. And finally... Uh, Point six is the restore moment. God pushes the button and restores everything. Even in the story of chapter eight, God restores everything. 
God moves, God works, God restores at that time in this period that this chapter is alluding to and is speaking about, that God will restore things. And of course, when we think of uh, eschatology, which is the things of to come, when the, when the end of the world and the new beginning and the new creation comes, that is the ultimate reset button. When God resets all of creation, when God resets everything and where God moves in power and anointing. Now, how does this, these six points connect to us in our life and to the teachings of Jesus Christ? Really good question. There are moments in life when we wonder what on earth is going on. Why am I traveling through this problem? Why am I battling through this difficulty? Why is life so tough? Why is the world so crazy? Why are there times in life, in history, when things become so dark and so evil? Well, these, these chapters in this kind of literature teaches us in a vivid way that God is at work, that God is in control, and that God will move in power. And that God is present. I remember my, uh, my aunt comes from a, uh, a farming family, and she, um, her father owned sheep, a sheep farm in the Shropshire Hills. And I remember going to this uh, sheep farm in the Shropshire Hills, easy for me to say, it's like Worcestershire, Shropshire, Worcestershire, and went to Shropshire. And we used to watch at a certain time of the year, all the sheep coming up, and those poor sheep would come to a dipping pen where there would be this water, and the sheep would be placed in the water, and the shepherd would take his crook and push the sheep underneath the water for 30 seconds. And the sheep is going, what's going on? Man, under the water. And the sheep would be there and, they, and the shepherd, who I guess was, um, yeah, not by uh, my great uncle or something, great, great uncle, would hold it. And, and as a little boy, I'd watch this thinking, poor sheep, poor sheep. Ooh. And then the sheep would come up and it would relief would be across the face of the sheep. And then, again, because they needed two dips. And of course, the process was a kind of cleansing that would happen to the sheep while it was in the middle of that because it was a chemical, it was antibiotics, it was a whole range of things that would stop the sheep from being inflicted by disease. But while the sheep is under the water, the sheep is wondering, what is going on? What is taking place? What is happening? And then you come up. And often I think that, there is a, that we understand that when we go through difficult times, we ourselves are going, what is happening? What is taking place? What is going on? Well, often in this literature and in these final 7 to chapter 12 chapters, you can see man's evil, God's timing, repentance is key. You can see 
that, that there's a cosmic battle taking place that God will judge and that God will set the restore button at that moment. Now, this should encourage us as we jump into this chapter. And Now, you can break the chapter up into two parts. Interesting. There is the dream itself, whereas chapter 7 was a vision. There is the dream itself. And so the dream begins in the third year of King Belshazzar. Now we know about Belshazzar, writing on the wall, Medes and the Persians came. Rain, I, Daniel, had a vision after that one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, the province of Elam. The vision was beside the Ulai Canal. Interesting, Daniel finds himself by a canal in Iran, in a place called Elam, and there he is stood. This is reminiscent of Ezekiel having a vision by a river, a mighty moment where suddenly he's there at a place where he is stood. He's in this dream, and in this dream, he's transported to this place because this is significant. It shows there's a prophetic moment that affects the whole city, of um, the whole nation of Israel. Let me get the timing for you here. It's around 553 BC he's having this. We know this because we know when Belshazzar was defeated. I looked up and there before me I saw a ram with two horns. The literature turns into a kind of cartoon approach. Instead of beasts and hybrid creatures rising up, we now have common domesticated animals. This tells us a point that actually domesticated animals are often being controlled by a shepherd. And I think this is important because the imagery is of, of the political powers that are at work, the political forces. We have players here. We have a ram, we have a goat, we have a ram with two horns, and then one horn gets bigger. We have a goat with one big ugly horn, and then we have a goat with four horns, and then we have a, go a little horn that appears in the text. So we have a cartoon approach to this, but it, and with domesticated animals, they're not beasts. In other words, what God is saying to us through this dream is that they may think they're really important, but I am the one who is in control and I am the shepherd of heaven and earth and I am the one that organises and I am the one that sees the nations and I am the one that is in control. See how important this is? And of course, first of all, we have the ram. And the ram comes up and he watched the ram charge towards the west, the north, the ram comes up. The ram has a horn that is prominent. Now, the explanation to the dream is given at the end of the chapter. And it's quite important that we understand that the animals are representing countries, empires, and political powers. And it's making the point that there is hostility towards God in these powers, these, the ram, the goat, the little horn, and they are opposing God. But God is overlooking this and seeing it. That human evil is relentless and that there is a heavenly battle taking place. 
Now you and I know that in our own lives that most of evil that we've ever experienced has been brought by another person. Most of suffering that we've experienced has become because of the words, the actions of others. And often we forget that there is a hostility to the things of the kingdom of God. And as Christians, we experience that hostility. Jesus himself said, we are like lambs that go out amongst wolves. Comforting, not very, but it means that it is a dangerous time, that we do face problems. And, and that there is a spiritual dimension of the heavenly hosts. And I think the biggest danger that we can forget as Christians is that we are still in a spiritual battle that is taking place. And God still looks at the nations, but we look at this from a completely different perspective. Now, putting it clearly, the ram is Persia. Persia rises up. It defeats Babylon. It has two horns, one that becomes prominent, and this is interpreted in the dream. And there... Another one becomes prominent, which is the Persian and the Medes. The Medes drop off, the Persians rule, and they reign. And then all of a sudden, a goat appears. Now, for us today, when we think about animals, we think of ram. We think, oh, ram's always stronger. A ram's amazing, mainly because we drive ram trucks. I mean, we don't drive goat trucks, do we? <laughs> goat yeah, get your goat truck. No, ram. It's 2,600 2, power. Ram. But here, the readers would understand that goats, male goats, could be a real problem. And there we have the Persian Empire followed by the Greek Empire. Now remember, Daniel is having this vision, what, about 150, 200 years earlier. And so this would have confused him. He would have been, what is going on? Because the vision talks about the temple. The vision talks about the sacrifice. Well, the, the temple was destroyed. Greece was still a small, minor power in the ancient world. Greece wasn't powerful. Greece wasn't influential. It was a bunch of city-states. It didn't become powerful until the goat arrived. Who is the goat? Well, the goat is Alexander the Great, who suddenly, in 13 years, rose up, defeated Darius the Persian twice. Darius ran off towards the east. Alexander came down towards Jerusalem, destroyed the city of Tyre, crucified 50,000 people in Tyre, moved on to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's opened the gates. He came in. And there he conquered Jerusalem, he conquered Egypt. This is the goat with the one horn. He came swiftly, he came powerfully, he came and moved around in power. And then, 13 years later, in 323 BC, at that moment, Alexander, whether he was ill or poisoned in the city of Babylon, he died. They said to Alexander, who should take over? And Alexander said, the strongest. Twenty years of war broke out. Between four generals, they killed his sons, 
and then the four generals fought and fought and fought until the kingdom was split into four. Four generals took four horns and these were established. So there were different generals that took over the land. 150 years after this, approximately, in a generation, there came one leader that rose up. And this is what this chapter is about. Antiochus. Antiochus IV, who rises up, he moves south and the little horn arrives. So the ram is Persia, the goat is Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. Then the four horns are the breakdown of the four, uh, of the empire of Alexander. And then after the establishment of the four Greek kingdoms, there then, some time later, four generations later, arrives Antiochus, the, the mad. Antiochus, the evil. Antiochus, the little horn, who arrives. And as he arrives, the whole world changes. So let's take a moment. I watched and the ram charged towards the west, standing against it. I was thinking about suddenly a goat, Alexander, prominent with horn between his eyes, crossed the whole earth without touching the ground. 13 years changed the world. Greek culture changed the world massively. Imagine the British Empire changed the world or American culture changes the world today. It came towards the two-horned ram. Great rage. They attacked each other. They battled. And the, of course, the ram from its power. The goat became very great. And out of it came the four horns. Out of one of them came another horn. Started as small but grew in power to the south. This small horn, verse 9, changes everything. So we've gone from Persia to Alexander to the four kingdoms. Fast forward 150 years. Antiochus the fourth, And out of them came... A small horn, but grew in power to the south. He challenged Egypt. And to the east, he challenged towards Persia and Syria and towards the beautiful land. So this Antiochus is really interesting. Antiochus IV. He rises up and he is obsessive. Let me explain to you something about Antiochus. Antiochus is pompous. He's like Nero. Antiochus is powerful. He is a psychopath. He murders. He kills. He, he performs in the streets. He mocks people. He disappears into the crowd and then appears. He murders people. He is an utter madman. And he decides that he is God. And at this point, he's powerful. He experiences a defeat against the beginning of the Roman Empire when Rome took over Greece. But his real point is he is in Antioch. 
And he looks all across. He has to fund his armies. And he looks towards Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has experienced years of peace. And he moves towards Jerusalem. And he decides several things. He will oppose what the scripture calls the princes. The prince. In other words, he will oppose God and the heavenly hosts. And so Antiochus is prideful, he is pompous, and he is powerful. And he comes into Jerusalem and he decides to take over Jerusalem. Oh yeah. And he decides that the Jewish nation will no longer be the Jewish nation. He decides that he is a god. He decides that they will become Greeks. And he decides that it's the end of the Jews. So he comes in and he decides these things. What is he driven by? The little horn is driven by a deep sense of he wants the money of Jerusalem. He owes debts. He's bankrupt. And the tithe in the temple was massive. He wants the Jewish money. Secondly, he comes, he wants to eradicate Jewish worship. And thirdly, what he wants to do is he wants to be driven by his own ego. He calls himself Antiochus IV, the manifest God. Now you can imagine what the Jerusalem believers would have felt at this time. They already felt the division between Greek culture and the world. And now this figure, this anti-Jewish figure, this this manifest God comes into Jerusalem and bans Judaism. Completely bans Judaism. What does he do? Well, first of all, he persecutes any Jew that wants to be a Jew. In other words, if a mother gives birth to a child, these are historical facts, and she circumcises her child, then that mother and that child are thrown off the city walls and killed. Nobody was allowed, nobody was allowed to be Jewish. And it talks about this. He came with his arrogance. He came with his pride. He came, he took the temple and for six years took over the temple and there worshipped Zeus in the temple. And there they worshipped Zeus, they burnt the Torah, they burnt the scrolls, they killed anybody that was wanted to be a Jew, and he himself sat in the temple and people had to worship him as a god. Had to worship him as a god. You imagine this, the persecution, the pain, even worse, he took pigs, sacrificed pigs in the temple and put the blood of pigs all over the temple. Even worse, they had orgies and terrible things, sexual uh, uh, fornication within the temple itself. The whole of Judaism was gone. Jews would come forward and they would have to apostate. They would have to denounce their faith. And as you know, for 2,300 nights and evenings, this terrible thing happened. For a period of about six years, this terrible thing took place. People were in crisis. People, now remember, God knows about this suffering. Because this was happening 
around 162 BC, but oh, before that, between 171 and 163 BC, but at 550 BC, the Lord spoke to Daniel in detail about the pain, about the suffering about the agony, about Antiochus, about the temple. The temple was destroyed. It hadn't even been rebuilt. About all of these details. What does this tell us? And forgive me, I've given you loads of history. This tells me this, that the spirit of God and the presence of God, that God cares about his people. And for many of us, we go through terrible times. We go through Years of battle and agony. It's called the time of wrath. It's called, you see that word, he came small out of them. He came another horn which started small but grew in power to the south towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the hosts of heaven and threw some of them, the starry hosts, down to the earth and trampled them. It set itself up to be great, the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. This is when this happened. This is when the terrible time happened. This is when the darkness came to Jerusalem and the Torah was burnt, and the terrible time took place. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered. Antiochus, the little horn, prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. That's the Torah, the Bible, the Old Testament was thrown to the ground and was burnt. And then I heard a holy one speak, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion and the cause of desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. This is everything I've described. It was horrific. It was terrible. It was dark. It was persecution. It was endless suffering. You couldn't be a Jew. The temple was defiled. He said to them, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Very specific. And of course, a lot of people have looked at these numbers and worked with these numbers and thought about these figures. A lot of people have tried to work this out. They're here in chapter 8 and the numbers. And of course it talks about that it will be at the end of the age, uh, in the end days. Now I don't actually believe that it's talking about the end days as in the end days. It's talking about this terrible period. Although it should give us comfort about the end days. Because it's in the same way that Peter stood up and preached and said, in the end days, the prophet Joel said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and my sons and daughters will prophesy. The old men will have dreams in the end days. 
So often interpreters on the extreme will talk about the end days and work out the 2,300 days. Or is it days and nights? Or is it half that number, 1,150 days? And they get really caught up with the time and the amount and the detail. Now, it does happen that... Roughly speaking, 2,300 days is about six years, which is the period of Antiochus IV. The stopping of the sacrifice was about three years, which is half that number, so it does work out. Although it is... Why do numbers exist in the Bible? Are they always... What are they for? I believe this. That when the Lord speaks in numbers, what he's actually telling us is this, point two of my opening statements. The world is evil, but I have an appointed time when I will work and I will move and I will deliver. The world is evil and you're battling and you're wondering when the end of your problem is going to come. But there is an appointed time when you will find freedom, when you will find life, when you will find deliverance, when God will come through for that problem, when God will come through for that battle, when God will work and move. There is an appointed time. Here it was a comfort. 2,300 evenings and days. Sacrifice in the temple. And you can work it out. It's fascinating. But for me, it's a bigger principle. God is in control. And you will get through this. You will get through that pain. You will get through that suffering. You will get through that difficulty. You will get through what you're facing in your life. Because there are always Antiochuses that rise up and come and go. Whether their name is Hitler, whether their name is Stalin, whether their name is Mao. Whoever they may be with the evil of darkness, even great Caesars and rulers. God is in control. He is the one. There is a danger, and let me talk about timing here. There is a danger that when we get into numerology and working out the times and the dates, Jesus himself said in uh, Mark chapter 13, he said, no man knows the day or the hour that I will return. Now, some people say, well, we may not know the day or the hour, but we can know the month and the year. And this is where we get into problems. Because then there are those people who start to tell us when it's going to happen. Tell us when it's going to take place. Do you remember in 1994, when Dr. Camping, uh, Harold Camping, had a brilliant radio show, great Bible teacher, and in 1993 wrote a book about that he'd worked out all the dates when the Lord would return, and the Lord would return on March 1994 on the 21st of March, exactly. Everybody bought into it. People were reading his books. People ran up their credit cards because the Lord was coming back. People didn't get right in their marriages because the Lord was coming back. He was debated in great stadiums and he spoke about this. He was a second coming rock star and Jesus never came. Oh, he had it sorted out, but Jesus never came. 
And so he moved it forward to the following year because he was then dealing with the, and often this is the line, with the Jewish calendar. And Jesus never came. And Jesus never came. Do you remember Y2O when we all waited at the turn of the century and all the words, but Jesus didn't come? Do you know one of the most important dates that there is to some people is October the 22nd. Why is this date really important? Write it down on your notes. Well, first of all, it's important because it's my birthday. October the 22nd. Yes. But secondly, in 1844, October the 22nd, Christ was supposed to return. Now, this had been prophesied before by Reverend Miller, a Baptist minister, who prophesied all of these things and said all of these things. And he prophesied and worked it out that it would be again at this particular time. And it didn't happen. And then he said it was going to be October the 22nd, 1844. And it didn't happen. And it was going to be March with the Jewish calendar. And it didn't happen. And people believed the Baptist minister. And they followed him. And it didn't happen. And he... It didn't stop. It, it, it spawned a whole denomination called the Adventists. The Seventh-day Adventists were born because of Miller's preaching. But he prophesied his date was that. Let me tell you something else. There is, and this has been theologically tracked, there are 200 solid predictions from leading or or fringe individuals of some standing, 200 of the date that Christ would return, the year and the month, 200 have been tracked since 1945 to today. 200. 200. That's more than two a year of people that have been tracked. Now, what does this tell us, my friends? It tells us, okay, I know Jesus is coming. And let me just say, I'm not against preaching about the second coming because I believe it. Let me tell you something. One of the biggest indicators that we are at the end times and the urgency is coming, and I do believe in urgency, is the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. That is remarkable. That is incredible that after AD 70, completely destroyed, Israel was reestablished. That is phenomenal. That is incredible. That is amazing. And that should make us want to see God and know God. But the very nature of what I'm trying to communicate to you is this. That when we go through times of suffering, we have to be able to do three things. And this is what the Jewish nation learned at this time. Number one, we have to be able to repent against our rebellion. Whenever we go through a tough time, friends, like the Jewish nation had to do, we have to get right with God and repent. Number three, we need to stand. This is an age to keep standing and believing in Jesus and preaching the gospel And number three, we have to believe. Believe that God will come through. Believe that God is with us. Repent, clear up our lives, 
solidarity, stand together as one group of people, as one church, and believe. Believe in Jesus. Believe in his power. Believe in his gospel. Because we do go through dark times. We do go through those years when the temple is full of pig's blood and there's terrible things happening in our lives but remember that on the Friday Jesus was nailed to the cross and on the Saturday he was in the tomb and in darkness and on the Sunday he rose again victorious suffering the battle is on but each one of us let us believe in the words of Jesus that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And I am with you. Oh, I could, I could talk about this chapter. I've got like another 40 minutes on all the information I could share about this chapter. But I just want to bless you and know that what evil you're facing, God is in control. His timing is perfect. Keep a heart of repentance. There's a cosmic battle on. God will judge. And finally, he will restore your life and he will restore all things. So if you're in the sheep pen and you're in the dip at the moment, come up and say, thanks be to God, I believe. I stand. I keep my relationship right with God. Bless us, Lord. And thank you for our time of preaching and teaching and help us to live in victory in the power of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.